Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Conway Shield is one of the few companies led by a president who has saved a life at the threat of his own. Paul Conway serves with a relentless firefighter mentality like his brother and father before him. Founded in 1985, Conway Shield manufactures America's finest helmet shields while arming firefighters and law enforcers with products Paul Conway himself would trust in the line of fire. Shop shields, uniforms, cameras, and more at ConwayShield.com. Welcome to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance podcast. This episode is the second and final installment of a two-part interview featuring guest host Jim McNamara and retired FDNY Captain Alexander Hagen. Captain Al began his career in 1973 and served in some of the FDNY's busiest companies. After 35 years of service in the field, he decided to become part of union leadership. Hagen began his union service as the captain's rep, and then he became the president of the Uniformed Fire Officers Association. Be sure to listen to part one of the interview, which covered leadership, human performance, and organized labor. In part two, Jim and Captain Al continue their exploration of civil unrest and fiscal austerity. Thank you for tuning in. Captain Al, as a young firefighter in the early 70s, can you describe the financial, fiscal situation and conditions of New York City? Well, when I was a young fireman, I wasn't that politically engaged. I mean, uh, you know, I subscribed to the New York Times and I, I read it every day, but I was really concerned about trying to earn a living to support my wife and my uh, growing family. But through the fog of time, what I remember is that the city of New York had, I'm going to say recklessly, used borrowing, not for capital expense, but for day-to-day expenses. So that led to a situation where the bankers or the financiers, or let's, let's just call them Wall Street, they had had enough and they said, we're not going to buy your bonds. Uh, then Mayor Abraham Beam who, by the way, had been the controller before that, the chief financial officer of this city, was like wringing his hands. He didn't know what to do. The city, I would say, nudged up against bankruptcy. The mayor uh, was pleading to Washington to send money. Gerald Ford was the president at the time. And there was a famous headline in the Daily News, Ford to city, drop dead. We were luckier then than we are now because right now the whole country is in big trouble. Back then there were some pockets of trouble, New York being one, but other parts of the country were doing okay. Even Detroit was doing okay. uh, California was doing uh, really well. Portland, Oregon was doing well. The governor at that time, uh, Hugh Carey, got together with a Wall Street financier. I think that I don't know how to pronounce the company, Lazard Fairs. Lazard Ferrer. Uh, uh, Lazard Ferrer, a guy named Felix Royerton, and uh, created an entity to run the city, a financial control board which would uh, have to okay any decisions that the mayor or the city council made. I guess uh, somebody to say no. And then they came to all the stakeholders and they wanted help. So... The unions were asked to provide givebacks, contractual givebacks, which they did, and buy some bonds with pension 
money, which they did. The bankers, Wall Street, they were asked to turn in their, their city bonds, uh, bonds backed by the full faith and credit of the city of New York, in, uh, in return for Big Mac bonds. So Big Mac was this uh, municipal assistance corporation that Felix Royan and it created. And uh, so they turned in their bonds. Now, the money, uh, the numbers may be a little off, but you get the drift of it. So they traded in their city bonds paying 3% for Big Mac bonds paying 12 or 15%. So I remember being a young guy and I said, <laughs> next time there's trouble, I want to get online behind the bankers. I don't want to really jump in there first. Because again, in order to have trust, you need honesty. And I viewed that as not being honest. But the rich people, the money people, the real big money people, they don't like working class people to develop piles of money. And when they do, when the working people develop piles of money, the wealthy people are coming after it. I lived in the same neighborhood as you, and I remember as a little kid in grade school, every weekend moving vans showing up to the city and, and, people, and taking them away. Well, back in the early 70s, there was kind of a perfect storm. Before Mayor Beam, when I first came on to the fire department, Mayor John Lindsay was the mayor. He was a Republican progressive and he was trying as hard as he could to spend the city into bankruptcy. <laughs> he, he couldn't give away enough money. <laughs> it was impossible. But at that time, if a building owner didn't pay their taxes, they were allowed to go into arrears. I don't remember the exact, maybe it was seven years or some fairly lengthy amount of time. So the building owners would collect the rent not pay the taxes, not provide heat, or really provide nothing other than the roof, which very often leaked. The tenants, particularly the tenants uh, on uh, public assistance, if there was a fire, Mayor Lindsay gave them $2,000. Now, to put it in perspective, when I started in the fire department, my salary was 11500 a year. <laughs> and he was giving $2,000, one-sixth of what I earned for a year, he would give to a family that had a fire. In addition, they would go to the top of the waiting list for public housing, for the projects, which, although they have their own issues with crime and what have you, they're, they're decent buildings. They're well-built buildings. So there was all kinds of incentive for fires. And I learned as a young guy, I'd come to work and I would drive around 36 engines response area before, way before work. And I would look to see the U-Haul trucks, the, the budget rental trucks, whatever. And uh, I'd go into the firehouse and I'd say, uh, we're going to have a job tonight on 126th off Madison. Get out of here, Hagen, no chance. <laughs> Sure enough, we go and it'd be a fire because the people knew there was going to be a fire. And I remember watching people lower furniture from, from fire escapes with, with ropes, like almost roof ropes. It was, it was pretty funny. And you talk about the differences in time. In that world, buildings were worthless. The difference here in New York now, even in poor neighborhoods, the buildings have incredible value. Should that give us hope? Moving forward? I think 
when times are really good and tax money is flowing like the Niagara River and, and we can do a lot to help everyone in society. But I also think that our political leaders need to recognize when things turn bad, such as we are experiencing now with the COVID uh, lockdowns, it's time to cut back. So here comes the question, like, do you cut back? Let's say you determine or the controller or the, uh, the, the financial people, they determine that the city budget needs to be reduced uh, 20%. Does that mean that you take every program and reduce it 20%? Programs that didn't exist 20 years ago that were only started because we were doing so well? Or do you do away with everything that's extraneous, superfluous, or extravagant, and concentrate on the delivery of basic services? The first responsibility of any level of government is the safety of its citizens. So pretty much that's going to be fire, EMS, and police. But we also have to, as part of safety, we have to provide sanitation services. In New York, we need streets paved. We need street lights maintained. We have an obligation to provide education. So I think that at a time like this, there needs to be a real discussion about what is an essential service. The essential services need to be fully funded. And after you determine what that is, the, then you can figure out if you have enough money to do anything extra. To do otherwise, I think, turns off not only the regular citizens, it turns off the business community. Right. You think about the, the firestorm that you dealt with as a firefighter and as an officer. Are you familiar with the, the work of Joe Flood and the book The Fires? Yeah, I know Joe Flood. What's your take on, on Joe's assessment? Well, Joe's a Harvard-educated guy. He's brilliant, I think. He hits the nail, many of, he hits many nails right on the head. Like even today, the, the, the city services are determined via algorithm. Do you consider that problematic? Well, I'm going to tell you something about algorithms, my own personal opinion, not being a math major. Algorithms are what people hide behind. Algorithms do not write themselves. Algorithms are written by people. And the people bring their prejudices and wants and, and dislikes to every algorithm. Sure. It's only as good as the variables you put in. But when you think back to the firestorm that occurred in this city, and, in, and we'll use us because this is something that, that we understand best, wasn't it the red cap program that the fire department initiated that really began to, to put a knock on the, the outrageous amount of fire in New York City? Well, the, re the red cap program, of course, was the fire marshals. And that helped a lot. But also, I think when Mayor Koch got in, and, and Mayor Koch didn't really treat the fire service well, but he was an effective mayor. He helped the city get back on its feet. He was instrumental in changing those laws that encouraged the burning of buildings. Uh, let's say there were no more moving vans waiting out in front of the tenements when Koch was mayor. And you talk about the austerity. Captain Al and I walked to this location just south of Times Square, and it's virtually empty. Manhattan is uh, not quite a ghost town, but it's it's more like a, a quiet hamlet somewhere. It's, uh, the teeming streets are not teeming. I've never experienced this in my life. It's, it's incredible.
we'll move now to the unrest component. The 70s and 80s were an era of incredibly high crime rates and bouts of civil unrest in New York City. How did you navigate the moral challenges of the time, balancing the obligations of being a firefighter and your own personal views? I worked at a time where we were things were thrown at us. We were, I was never f shot at with a with a weapon, but uh, quart bottles of soda were the regular hand grenade of choice, <laughs> and they weren't thrown from across the street. They were thrown from the top of uh, the roof of a fourteen story project, and somehow I guess it's youth, uh, bravado, a sense of invulnerability, and. Uh, at least a large dash of stupidity. Uh, we never really retreated. We just kept fighting the fire. And uh, one guy would look up, and when the bottles were coming, they'd say, "Look up!" And you know, you would, like a bullfighter, look to get out of the way at the last second. Did you encounter much in the way of civil unrest? I did not encounter real urban rioting. I didn't work the night of the blackout in 1977, and the Martin Luther King riots occurred a few years before I got on the fire department. Now, I've heard stories, of course, uh, about 1968 with the MLK riots, where uh, 36 engine turned onto Madison Avenue, and they were responding to a box, and they gave uh, the all-hands signal, we have a fire. And uh, the dispatcher said, do you have an address? And they said, uh, I can see at least 10 different buildings on fire. Which one do you want me to go to? And the dispatcher said, take the first one. <laughs> and then in 1977, that was more of a, uh, of a uh, modern day civil unrest where uh, the mostly peaceful demonstrators expressed their outrage at the system by stealing and looting. And it was disheartening to me because there were a lot of small business people in, in Spanish Harlem that had their livelihoods destroyed in one night, and uh, nobody really cared about them, and they were hard workers. And, and ironically, if a grocery store in Spanish Harlem was looted and then burnt out, people couldn't buy groceries there the next day. I don't think it was well thought out any more than the modern-day, mostly peaceful demonstrations are thought out. Right. Do, do you remember in, in Washington Heights when, when 67 engine was firebombed? Do you remember that one? I do remember that one. Again, I wasn't working, but George Crusher, yeah. who was burnt pretty bad in that, eventually transferred to 44 truck, and I got to work with him. Wonderful guy. He could have gotten out on uh, post-traumatic stress and... But, you know, like most firemen, he wants back in. Sure. Did you recall if the fire department offered any guidelines for dealing with violence or civil unrest back then? They did. I guess after 1968, uh, they wrote an all-unit circular about responding during times of civil unrest. And there was an order of response, which I do not remember, except that there was one or two police cars involved. I don't know if we were led by a police car and a police car brought up the rear, but ideally the policemen would kind of clear the scene so we could get into the building. And as you know, Jimmy, once you're in the fire, no one's coming in that's but a fireman. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I can remember the Million Youth March. I guess this was about like 96 or so, the first one. And they had anticipated a great deal of unrest. And we had that similar situation, front and rear uh, PD. With the PD, yeah. yeah. 
but but I, you wonder now with the defund the police how that'll work out. I, I don't know. Sure. And that kind of leads into the next question I would ask is, like, what advice would you offer young leaders today who find themselves responding to fires and emergencies during periods of unrest? Well, I'm not so young and dumb anymore. <laughs> I don't have so much bravado and sense of invulnerability. I realize how vulnerable we all are. So I would uh, advise them to operate a little differently. We take an oath to protect the people. And uh, I know every single firefighter, any race, any gender, any sexual orientation, they take that oath seriously, and it will be hard to stop them from going to work. But if at all possible, have the police clear the scene, and if not, get into that building as fast as you can. Terrific answer. Going to jump back to that previous question. Do you remember any guys from 36 talking about like the, the 68 riots? Yes, I remember Eddie Whalen. Eddie Whalen was uh, a great guy. He just passed away last year at 80 whatever, and he was working that night. And it was a seminal moment in his life because he talked about it often. That's the story where I said they turned onto Madison Avenue and there were 10 fires or 12 fires. And and they didn't engage any difficulty, just fires that, that night? No, there were, uh, you know, uh, flotsam and jetsam being thrown yeah. at them, and but no gunfire. And uh, they were being yelled at and cursed at. And But as I said, once you get into the fire building, nobody is coming. Yeah, we have... Uh in 26, we have a picture with a staging area for any kind of chaos, but we still have a picture of all the rigs lined up that night for that. You hope it doesn't come to that again, but hope is not a strategy. Hope is not a strategy, <laughs> no. Well said. Okay, we'll come to the layoffs and fiscal austerity. When the prospects of layoffs loomed, how did that impact you mentally, emotionally, financially as a young firefighter? Well, the commissioner, chief of department, he held two hats famously, John T. O'Hagan, was uh, a very smart guy, an astute observer of uh, human psychology, and I believe cynically used his position to maximize what the city could get from this problem. I'll explain. And the numbers, fog of time, again, I don't have the numbers exactly right, but you'll get the sense of it. So originally, there were 50 layoff notices about sent to young firefighters and, you know, different. everybody was in different boroughs, what have you. And as you might expect, the firefighters, the young firefighters brought the layoff notice, which literally was a pink slip, brought it into the firehouse and said, put it on a kitchen table and said, look what I got. And of course, the senior firemen all said, don't worry, there will never be layoffs. The city did not lay people off during the height of the Great Depression. They're certainly not going to lay people off now. And everybody felt pretty good about it. And 36 Engine, we had one guy on that original list, Tony Campos, terrific, terrific guy. O'Hagan waited a few more weeks let it percolate, and then he sent out a few hundred notices. Now there's more guys on the block. Don't worry, it'll never happen. But now it's starting to get into people with a little more time. Then 
the administration came to the unions and said, to help avert these layoffs, we need givebacks, contractual givebacks. And I don't even remember what we gave up. We gave up two personal leave days and a blood day and some other things. And O'Hagan knew we would go along with it because of the, you know, it was an intense brotherhood. Now it's a brotherhood and a sisterhood that we wouldn't leave anyone on the battlefield, let's right. say. So they, the unions went along, they agreed to all the givebacks, and they, in the end, on July 1st, 1975, John T. O'Hagan and Mayor Abraham Beam laid off 1,400 firemen. What percentage of the firefighter rank was that? Uh, there were more firemen then than there are now because the busy companies had six uh, firefighters. 36 was a six-man company. 58 was a six-man company. And the second sections. Second sections and the trucks. Uh, 26 most nights rode with six people. They had a guy in the phone booth on yeah. the side. <laughs> so I don't know the percentage, but what happened was by the end of the weekend, the city was in trouble firematically. And... The average citizen might not realize it, but the fires had, the number of fires and the severity of the fires had dramatically increased so that even John T. O'Hagan, as stone-hearted as he could be, said, this isn't, this isn't going to work out. And they rehired, I guess, uh, f about 500 and reopened companies because to save money, you just don't have to get rid of firefighters, uh, you have to close companies. And today, again, if you're harking back to Googling legacy room fire versus modern room fire, you could see why you need fire companies to be able to respond in the shortest amount of time possible. Uh, Mayor Bloomberg cynically said when he was proposing to close 20 firehouses, we all want a firehouse on every corner, but we can't afford it. And I used to tell him, no one ever brought that up but you. Right. No one wants a firehouse in every corner, but we certainly want at least the number of firehouses we have now. Right. And what we don't really articulate to people is on a per capita basis, we're actually the small, one of the smallest big city fire departments in America. Yes. Not only for the number of units, but for the number of firefighters. Yeah. So jumping back to, to the layoffs, like, what was it like? You know, It finally hits you that... I'm laid off. Well, oddly enough, I worked the night before the layoffs. So the last day of June, and now the question was, do I work right through to nine or at midnight do I go home? Am I being paid for the whole tour? So uh, I guess that question went to the union. The union contacted O'Hagan. O'Hagan put over the voice alarm. You must stay till the end of the tour, uh, which was fine, you know. But that night in the firehouse, that night, the senior guy said, don't worry, you're not getting laid off. They're not going to go through with it. Tomorrow morning at 5 to 9, they're going to go on a voice alarm and say the layoffs have been canceled. But it was uh, traumatic for a lot of guys. I mean, I had a little more than two years. Two, I had like two and a half years in the fire department, but you also had time for prior city service or veterans time. So I had an additional two years of veterans time. So I wound up, uh, I was laid off with four and a half years of, of uh, time on the city, but they laid off up to seven years. You needed more than seven years seniority to hold the job. And as you know, 
a firefighter with seven years feels as if he's he's woven into the brickwork. Yes. yes. And, and what impact did it have on the remaining guys in the units? Well, the firemen are among the best people on earth, right? So any company that had people laid off and 36 Engine had five guys laid off, I think. Uh, yeah, five or maybe six even. What they did was they collected money every payday and they gave us money. Now, I was working uh, as a steam fitter, so the guy who ran it for 36 was a great guy, Eddie Sefashane. I said, Sefa, split this up among the other guys. I'm already working. I'm, I'm okay. But it created a lot of disillusionment. It created a, a real, I would say dislike, but certainly dislike is not even close to what it was. Let's say a, a burning hatred for John T. O'Hagan and Mayor Beam and one of the staff chiefs, a guy named Flynn. And O'Hagan, as I said, was an astute observer of the human condition. He did not let any of the physical crisis affect the officer corps because he knew that the officer corps is what ran the job for him. Right. And O'Hagan, like so many commissioners and chiefs of department, thought they could climb to some kind of eternal glory on the backs of the troops. O'Hagan was uh, reported to have said that he could run the job with 7,500 people. And uh, there is no longevity when you become, when you rise to the upper levels of the fire department. You last as long as the administration. And uh, it's a lesson that I wish previous guys had learned and I certainly hope future people learn. How did the unions handle this period? Well, the unions, I think, the fire union, I think, rose to the occasion in two ways. Uh, they continued to pay our health insurance, which was huge. I mean, most of the firefighters were young. Many, if not most, had families. And the union picked up the health coverage, which I will be forever grateful for. In addition... The president of the UFA at the time was a guy named Mickey May, famous guy, great guy. And his brother, John May, was the head of the Transit Police Department, PBA. At that time, there wasn't a unified police department in New York City. They had regular police. They had housing police and transit police. So John May, through John May, we were uh, offered, the laid off guys were offered jobs as bus drivers. And uh, we worked for... Uh, not the New York City Transit Authority. We all actually all work for MAPSTOA, which is a civil service job, a Manhattan Bronx Surface Transit. <laughs> Did you take one of those jobs? Well, funny you should ask. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I had an illustrious two-day career on the buses. <clears throat> of course, like most young firemen, I was consumed with the fire department. I loved the fire department. I couldn't imagine myself doing anything besides fighting fires. And I was on a bus a training bus with six other laid off, oh, five other laid off firemen. There were six of us all together. And we had a an instructor, I cannot remember his name, kind and really, uh, uh, I can't say how nice this man was. And he kept bad mouth in the fire department. He said, uh, you know, the uh, transit, we never laid off anybody. And you guys risked your life for them. Fire department's terrible. You're never going to quit the transit. 
So that became his mantra. You're never going to quit the transit. So halfway through the second day, he said, you're never going to quit the transit. And I said, how does this sound? I quit. <laughs> so I, I went home. He said, well, we're not taking you back to the garage. The garage was somewhere here on the west side that we went out of. And uh, I said, no, I'll stay for the rest of the day. And uh, when I got home, I said to Mary, and I quit the buses today. So she said, uh, uh, we had one one baby, and my daughter, Jennifer, and my son, Brendan, was on the way. And she said, oh, uh, what are you going to do now? So I said, well, I didn't really work the plan out that far in advance. <laughs> I'm not exactly positive what I'm going to do. But I was lucky. I was able to get a job steam fitting and working for a friend of mine. And, uh, and it wasn't long after that I was, like a, within a month, I was rehired. Was that for all or just for you? Was it phased in, the, the rehiring? Oh, the rehiring was phased in, yes. It took, uh, I think, uh, I was out for 14 months. There were guys out for about two years. When all the guys come back, what's the mood in the firehouse when they all come back? Well, some were disgruntled, to be honest. Some were angry, disgruntled. One guy, a friend of mine who I was in probie school with, uh, he was a crane operator, sign hanger. He never came back. He couldn't believe that they would lay you off. Uh, there was an urban myth, whether it's true or not. A young fireman from 17 Truck, Russ Linneball, he was killed in a fire uh, prior to the layoffs in uh, train yards up in the South Bronx. Well, I had heard that his mother received a layoff notice for him. He was killed in a line of duty. They didn't come off 100% right, and a lot of people were disgruntled. I will tell you that me personally, I was uh, deliriously happy to be back. And uh, although I certainly didn't vote for a beam the next time around, and I, uh, to this day, don't have much affection for John T. O'Hagan or Chief Flynn, basically, I put it behind me and, and moved on. As we translate this to, to today, right, the majority of the, the FDNY, very young. Yeah. Have no real understanding. They didn't have the chance to work with folks like you who could share the stories and push them forward. They have that feeling of invincibility. And right, you're a conduit from that time. And, and this also transcends beyond New York, right? It's because so many cities are facing difficulty. You know, how do we lay this out to them going forward that, you know what? City looks at you in times of, of trouble as a number. Well... This is what I would say, that even in a city with being led by an administration with grossly misguided priorities, the unions will step up to help. And they'll do it partly from altruism and partly for self-preservation. But one thing I would advise any union leader anywhere in the country is that if they come to you for contractual givebacks and they make their case satisfactorily that those givebacks will help, get in writing if you do a giveback what it means. So in other words, if they say, uh, give us back three vacation days and we'll have no layoffs, say, okay, put that in a form of a contract. But not only that, have a sunset date on any givebacks. 
And when the sunset date arrives, if the city is still doing bad, you may renew that give back. But if it's not doing bad, then you get your hard-fought gain back. And that's a mistake we made back then. And that was based solely on altruism. While, while the unions and the working people were being totally altruistic, Felix Royerton and the Wall Street guys were being totally self-centered. Right. Coming out of that period of being laid off, did that actually, was, was that the spur that drove firefighters to be more involved in their union? Actually, I'm going to say that the union activity, when I was hired in 1973, was already at a fever pitch. And I believe that it really began in the late 60s when the war started. And it kept going for a long time. Uh, I personally, right now, am dismayed by the lack of participation in the unions. Yeah. I think part of that is, again, they're so young. Almost all of them are you know, post-Reagan. They've grown up in a period of time of considerable profitability. They've also grown up in a time of continued diminishing union participation. Many of them may have come from homes. They've never, they've never seen it. They've never seen the benefits of it. And to them, you know, it means nothing. Well, I think that unions were if not mostly, certainly greatly responsible for the rise in the middle class in America after World War II. And again, the titans of Wall Street may decry corrupt unions or unions that try to run their business. And, uh, and uh, to that I respond, if you are on my compensation committee as head of Hagen Enterprises, and I am on the compensation committee for McNamara Inc. I think it's it's a RICO violation. To me, if these guys hadn't graduated the Wharton School, if instead they had graduated the School of Hard Knocks, the DOJ would have them in handcuffs. <laughs> well said. Well said. When you talk about today and, and looking into the crystal ball, you think that they're going to come for, for those givebacks. Will they ask again for pension money? Well, I said earlier, rich people, they're dismayed when, when working people have a big pile of money. Uh, they, they, they can't even believe it, and they try to get it from you. I will tell you that uh, many, many years ago, I think it was 1968, the city came to the unions and said, we want to change the pension investment portfolio. We want to be able to put more money into risky, riskier investments. And the union said, why would we allow you to do that? We like safe investments. And they said, well, what we'll do is we'll kind of split the money with you. We'll, of course, take the lion's share, but we'll give you the lamb's share. It won't guarantee that your pension will be greater or will be boosted, but every year we'll figure something out and it'll be variable. And uh, we'll supplement your pension. And the variable supplemental fund was born. Yes. They agreed to give us a defined benefit if you retired just for service. They gave guys who retired for service a defined benefit, and they took billions, literally billions of dollars out of the pension fund. And then Mayor Bloomberg, who I consider to be a, a, a good mayor, actually, his last term, he got a bug up his ass about the VSF and began calling it, because it's paid in December, yeah. he began calling it the Christmas bonus. It's very disingenuous, but that's what rich people do. 
they come for your money. So do I think that the city is going to come for a piece of the, uh, I think the five pension funds in the city of New York collectively are worth in the neighborhood of $200 billion, pretty ritzy neighborhood. Uh, I would say that some of that money they're going to try to get to rescue the city. And I, and I am not against that. And what protections do you get on that? How do we ensure again that uh, if this mayor gets this type of money, that we avoid a, a calamitous outcome? That I don't know. It's troubling. What I see is troubling. Uh, but I do know, I do trust Jake LaMond, of course, you know, is my sure. my man. And, uh, and Andy Asbro is my man. I trust those guys and the people on their executive board to carefully look at what's going on, analyze the requests, the guarantees and uh, for repayment and to uh, make decisions in the best interest of the membership. Yes, and, and that's a group that fully understands the history. Yeah. You talked about the variable supplement. I mean, it was stolen from a, from a blatantly illegal AB contract, uh, one that if challenged would have been tossed out on its face. I mean, it's one of the great train robberies in history. I think you and I share the same vein of, of rage against the against the the city. You talk about Bloomberg again, and he gets the benefit of being oh, he's a, kind of a nice mayor. You know, he tried to close firehouses while the he did while, close gra firehouses. while Ground Zero was still burning. He tried to do it. Oh yeah, closed six immediately. Uh, then every year threatened layoffs. I mean, that had an impact on on young guys back then. You know, that every year it was in the newspaper, oh, we're going to lay him off. And it was just a, a shell game. There's a misconception that firemen work when they go to fires. Firemen work when they go to work because you provide fire protection. So firefighters work when they are ready to respond. Right. That's it. Sure, the insurance policy. Yeah. yeah beautiful. And and by the way, insurance policy, if, if you had a... A renter's insurance, and you didn't have a fire in your apartment last year, would you cut your renter's insurance right. this year? Right. No, you'd probably increase it. Right. <laughs> what counsel do you have for those leaders today as they navigate the period of uncertainty, unrest, and physical uncertainty? I said earlier, the most admired trait in any leader is honesty. So I suggest that they're honest. Now, who should they be honest with is the big question for me. So first and foremost, I think they need to be honest with the people that work for them, the people below them on the, uh, on the org chart. Next, they need to be honest with City Hall. They need to let City Hall know the truth because no matter what they do, when a new mayor comes in, there will be a new fire commissioner, there will be a new chief of department, and then they need to be honest with the citizens. I was personally upset when uh, when the uh, job of chief of department was removed from civil service where he was he or she was free to speak up, not only to protect the people that work for him, but to protect the citizens. And right now, the citizens have no independent voice because... The chief of department, is, his tenure is subject to the whims, not the whim, but the, the, the will of uh, the commissioner and really, let's face it, more importantly, City Hall. Sure. 
they're almost in a, in a no-win situation. No-win situation. But if they were honest and spoke up and said, listen, these cuts are going to be devastating. If you live in the city of New York, I suggest that you uh, hook a hose up to your bathtub and, and keep it in the bed next to you. I mean, if they... if And that's really the urgency of it. But when they say, no, we'll make do, don't worry, they hold their job for another year or a few more months till that new mayor comes in. And then they're vilified by the people that work for them. The people that work for them know that they're shills. And if you were still the captain of 43, how would you convey to your your, your fine young firefighters what's happening and, and how to navigate that? The first advice I would give, which I already gave as a retired guy, is for the veterans to get their DD-214s together. Uh, for those of you that don't know, don't know, the DD-214 is your discharge papers from the armed forces because if layoffs are coming, you want to have that paperwork. You want to have those ducks in a row. And really, on the ground, in 26 truck, 43 truck, 53 engine, 58 engine, 44 truck, we really need to do our jobs. That's all. But what we also need to do is to be involved politically because complacency can allow uh, administrations with misguided priorities to take command of the city. And we really need to fight against that. We had a chief of department, Pete Hayden, and all over the country, hazardous material response is controlled by the fire department. And we had a police commissioner, Ray Kelly. He pressed hard for the NYPD to take over hazmat responses. And Pete Hayden, in a, what I consider to be a display of honesty and fearlessness, publicly denounced it. And of course, it cost him his job. But it, it allowed him to maintain his integrity, his dignity. He can go to any fire department function and is well-respected and that's the value of honesty. And a man with an unbelievable reputation as a firefighter and fire officer. Right to the bitter end. Amen. Coming back to a financial question. Do you believe that New York City is headed towards insolvency? I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm troubled by it, not just for its effect on the fire department, but its effect on the whole city of New York. Uh, as I said, back in 75, the city was in big trouble, but the state wasn't, and certainly the country wasn't. Now, sliding into the COVID mess, I don't know what's going to happen. And not only to New York, I mean to all the great cities. Yeah. Let's say I certainly hope that they're able to avoid bankruptcy. I do think that borrowing money to pay day-to-day -day expenses is not the answer which is what City Hall is calling for now, I do think that they need to seriously examine their priorities. And anything that is not deemed an essential service needs to be eliminated until times get better. And what are your thoughts on a potential uh, federal rescue? I don't know. I mean, uh, the federal budget is, uh, the, let me say the federal budget deficit is larger than it's ever been. Let's say I wouldn't rely on it. I would hope for it, but I wouldn't rely on it. With the New York delegation, I mean, uh, listen, Chuck Schumer is the minority leader of the Senate. He's one of the most powerful people in Washington. 
he not only represents New York State, he he lives in New York City. So I would hope that he could, uh, let's say, bring home some federal bacon. I don't know if it's enough to to get us out of the hole completely, but hopefully it can it can be part of the solution at least. True, and to buy us time. And again, all the money that's been invested in this city, you know, the differences between the 70s. I was, a, I was in grade school at that time. Right? You could walk away from buildings. I look out my window at a skyline. There are cranes still operating. They're still building. The buildings keep... The hope is, again, that if you all that's been dumped into the city beforehand, the really smart folks and the moneyed folks will work to find a solution. The question is, will we once again have to pay for it? Well, I'm sure we'll pay for it at least a little, but uh, the money folks, and, and I, I just want to correct in case I gave a bad impression. I'm not against money folks. I believe that money folks are the movers and the shakers. And even though I felt like they clipped more than their fair share of, of the last financial crisis, and I'm pretty sure they'll figure out a way to do the same this time, we need them and we need them desperately. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I authored the Leadership Under Fire Senior Man's Performance Journal. The digital journal is sent out every other Tuesday to share human performance content that provokes thought, generates discussion, and fosters self-improvement, both professionally and personally. LUF reinvigorated my commitment to lifelong learning. I'm hopeful that my performance journal is a valuable resource for leaders who are in pursuit of optimal human performance. To receive the LUF Senior Man's Performance Journal, visit leadershipunderfire.com, scroll to the bottom, and enter your email address to join our newsletter. Thank you for listening. <laughs>